I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's not a hate. There's a want to end bad people, but it's not in a way that you wish to torture them. It's, uh, it's an odd thing. The, the, to think about really it's probably the first time I actually thought about it like that you want to end evil people but you don't want to become evil in doing so state sanctioned violence is probably the most offensive and publicized form of violence but it's also the most applauded there was a, a Taliban well what I thought to be a Taliban member watching us but he was just watching us like a spectator and he had a phone running through my head how this happened how we've been uh, blown up i just thought to myself he's he's here for one reason so i decided that i was going to kill him the odd thing was it was very methodical like i didn't have hearing protection on so i pulled my suppressor out and put it on my rifle and aimed at him he looked at me and you, you know, we didn't speak the same language, but I could tell he was sort of like, are you going to shoot me? And I'm, yeah, I'm going to shoot you. And I shot him and took my suppressor off. And basically that was that. It turned out that he was in fact Taliban and there was in fact uh, ID present and probably saved some lives. Sergeant Paul Kale is a Special Forces soldier and a founding member of the 2nd Commando Regiment, a unit that's seen more violence and casualties than any other branch of the Australian Defence Force. Paul is well versed in physical violence. He has served multiple tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, has eight black belts in martial arts, and has developed his own method of close quarter combat. What I think of as violence has changed throughout my life. When people talk about a sport being violent, I can't even associate the word with violence. People might say, you know, fighting in a cage, mixed martial arts is violent. No, it's not. People are punching each other, kicking each other, choking each other. There's a referee there. It's not violent at all. When your head's removed from your body, I think when people stab you, people shoot you, your body comes apart, you get blown up, you kill children because they go to school. I think that's violent. In 2013, Paul put his training to use when he stormed an enemy compound and physically strangled a Taliban leader. It earned him the nickname Killer Commando and he's been widely celebrated as Australia's toughest soldier ever since. And that happened to you, right? In Afghanistan, where you choked out a Taliban member. Can you walk us through that? We entered a, a building. One of my team members, he made entry into, uh, as my team sort of entered a, uh, an area, he made entry into a, a low-lying door position, so he had to sort of crouch on down. It was night time. 
we had our night vision on and so on. And as he went in, he sort of got bailed back out. So the enemy soldier was sort of waiting for him, or enemy combatant, and sort of hit the ground and we're fighting away. And I came in to support him. And other team members are uh, making entry into other rooms and so forth. I, I wanted to shoot the enemy, but I couldn't guarantee that I could get a, a clear shot. And I couldn't guarantee that there wouldn't be ricochet. So you can see this is what my brain's going through. I'm able to think under that pressure. I've decided, well, I'll drag him off, grabbed at his arm and did a shoulder lock. Now out there people go, ah, and tap, but he didn't. So I broke his shoulder, he's still screaming, Allah Akbar, it's still on. I'll fucking strangle him. I grabbed the hold of his neck and strangled him until he, until he collapsed. But uh, he survived the incident and uh, we captured him, got information. I read everywhere that he died. Every time I told someone, it's, uh, and a lot of it you can actually read in there, it says, no, he didn't die, but the headline says, killed, bare hands. And then the next headline, killed, bare hands. It doesn't matter how many times you try and correct that. Eh, he actually didn't die. I have killed people, but it wasn't that time, and not when I strangled that lad. <laughs> Paul's background is laced with a rough childhood that traces back to Cranbourne, a suburb deep in southeast Melbourne. Amidst the bullying and poverty, Paul learned early on that violence can produce positive outcomes and serve a useful purpose. Could you tell me a bit about your childhood growing up in a neighbourhood right near mine in Cranbourne? What was that like? Uh, it was terrible. <laughs> My family was uh, not well to do. Uh, that wasn't a problem for me, but I think that led to a lot of being picked on with not understanding why. That was sort of my experience being young, was just dealing with a lot of bullies targeting me each day at school. It was an odd thing, but I grew up with it, and it's uh, something I experienced daily. So I didn't enjoy being young, and I look forward to, I guess, not being there, which is the reason I joined the Army. I knew that it would extract me straight out of Cranbourne and I would end up somewhere else. What was it about fighting that you felt like you needed so much? You only have to be beaten up every day of your life to, to be sick of it. You just get tired of being beaten and eventually you realise that no one's helping you, even though they try. It's like when I look at the modern bullying. All these solutions I hear about bullying means nothing to me. The solution to bullying is learn how to stop bullies. How and do you so stop bullies? You talk to them in the same language they speak. So the first time I was violent towards a bully, I was never bullied again. But it took a lot because I was a very timid young fellow. And then one day, it just snapped. And I was extremely violent, like you wouldn't expect from a, a young child. The child ended up unconscious and, you know, he could have been badly hurt. I, I harmed him. There was a fair few people watching, kids, other kids, just come and see me be beaten again. And that left a lot of people in shock. And uh, violence is a shocking thing. It's, uh, that's why terrorists use it. Terror is about violence for a political end. I'm doing something so that you change your behaviour. But in a way you're playing their game and you're fighting fire with fire, aren't you? Yep. 
and you think that's the way forward, your yep. experience has dictated that that's, that's the way to get a solution? Well, I'm not going to get a solution by telling you that that's not the way to go. Mm. Do you think you'll get a solution out of me by telling me that's not the way to go? Paul joined the army in 1987, a period he describes as the long peace between Vietnam and East Timor. He began studying martial arts and acquired eight black belts, up until 9-11, when he felt obliged to re-enlist. After 9-11, I, I wanted to do something about that. So that sort of inspired me to, to come back, and I was lucky enough to come back full-time. I was just working in the, the unarmed combat space, but once I became re-enlisted full-time, it was a sergeant commando and there was a critical trade shortage for sergeants in the commandos, so I ended up at 4 RAR commando. With the years of martial arts training up his sleeve, Paul developed the new instinctive model for close quarter combat that the Australian Defence Force has endorsed as part of their training program. During the training for the commando, mm. how do you acclimatise soldiers to violence? We take them through stages of training. Those stages, we escalate what they're exposed to as they go through their training. So it's, it's very well thought out. First of all, you're going through this cognitive stage of learning a skill set. You have to think about it, it's clunky, you've got to work your way through it. From there, you have this associated stage where you can do the skill set, but as soon as I put pressure on you, you start to make mistakes. You've got to work that through now to an automatic stage where it happens no matter what. And an example is, if I came at you to do harm to you, you could probably turn and run without thinking at all. Okay, you don't need to think about walking. I need your gunfighting to be like that. You don't think about it. I have to be able to give people the information of combat, but not harm them in that process. And it's something that we can do because combat stress is just stress. It's related to combat, but the body doesn't identify one stress from another. So I've got to learn how to put the body under stress and how to put soldiers under stress. So they learn to deal with stress and then I need to create triggers so I get the responses I want from them when dealing with combat. What, what are some ways you put people under stress? Even being uh, physical. You could be on a range, for instance, and then you could have people doing uh, run to the end of the range, run back, and then do a shoot again. All I did was raise your heart rate. Now I've got you breathing heavier. So once I start disrupting your, your breathing, and you start breathing over 10 breaths a minute, you are, can only focus on the thing that you're doing. When dealing with firearms, I want that to be automatic. This is how you train people and then it comes down to repetition. They can think automatically. So now they can think about what they're actually doing and what's going on around them. As a soldier progresses in training, you take that exposure to a higher level and they can be calm. It's not, it's not new to them. So when you're preparing soldiers and exposing them to different variations of extreme stress. Do you get a bit of a kick out of it? I enjoy watching young soldiers be correctly prepared. Being a veteran myself and the guys who work with me are all veterans with many decades of experience. We've learned a lot from our mistakes. So Australia, we went through a huge period of peace from Vietnam to now. But the training didn't prepare them for the violence that was about to engulf them in Afghanistan. In June, 
Fairfax journalists Chris Masters and Nick McKenzie revealed a leaked Defence Force inquiry that described a frenzied culture of unsanctioned and illegal applications of violence. The story traces back to late August 2012, when a rogue Afghan soldier named Hikmatullah killed three Australian soldiers while they played cards in their base in Uruzgan. Hikmatullah escaped and SAS soldiers were deployed to find the culprit. One source told the ABC's Dan Oakes that things did get a bit heavy-handed, while another source said things went a bit sideways there. In their pursuit of Hekmatullah, three Afghans were killed and the details surrounding their deaths are still hazy. These reports sparked an internal defence investigation conducted by Dr Samantha Cromfitz that detailed problems deeply embedded in the culture of Special Operations Command. The findings emphasised a complete lack of accountability involving Australia's elite special forces. I do need to note here that the bulk of these reports were published after our interview with Paul, so we didn't get the chance to ask him about the ongoing allegations. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. The aim of combat training is to try and bring soldiers as close to the theatre of war as possible, but it's never as sharp as the real thing. Could you tell us about a time you had to make a really sharp judgement call? Just before ripping out of country, we had done our last patrol. We ended up in a Taliban village. When entering the village, we were blown up several times by remote-controlled IEDs. And... um, or the special operations engineers explained to us how this was happening and our rules of engagement allowed us to engage spotters if you like and people who were operating in this way and uh, there was a, a Taliban well what I thought to be a Taliban member watching us but he was just watching us like a spectator and he had a phone running through my head how this happened how we've been uh, blown up this helicopter coming in and him watching us, I just thought to myself, he's, he's here for one reason. So I decided that I was going to kill him. The odd thing was it was very methodical. Like, uh, I didn't have hearing protection on, so I pulled my suppressor out and put it on my rifle and aimed at him. He looked at me and, he, you know, we didn't speak the same language, but I could tell he was sort of like, are you going to shoot me? And I'm, 
yeah, I'm going to shoot you. And I shot him and took my suppressor off. And basically that was that. It turned out that he was in fact Taliban and there was in fact uh, ID present and probably saved some lives. Do you think it was that impulsive? I think it's uh, the opposite. If I had have operated in the way the institution trains me, I probably wouldn't have shot him. Probably the helicopter would have landed and there would have been an explosion and there would have been carnage. We don't engage in these situations to cause more problems than what we're going into. When you see schoolgirls murdered for going to school, it all ends. It's very bad, evil people doing evil things. So you know that that's not the way you are. Unless you're a sociopath, you have a moral compass that you rely on. And it's actually harder to kill people than it is not to kill them. You just rely on that moral compass telling you that this is the right decision. The majority of what the military refers to as kinetic activity, which is another way of saying lethal force or active warfare, has been undertaken by the members of the Special Forces. Their mission was essentially a kill or capture operation, or as one former Special Operations Task Group member described to the ABC, their mission objectives switched from clear, hold and build to land, kill and leave. Afghanistan was just an incredibly kinetic environment. It was, uh, it was heavy in combat, and special forces mainly. We we've, were fighting all the time. So we learned some lessons that just simple things about our tactics where it could have been done better. Now, the training was excellent. We just don't know. And, and it's the same for every country. You learn. So you start adapting and you start changing to make sure it doesn't happen again. How is death different? in a war scenario as opposed to what we see on TV and in pop culture? Well, the way, it's mostly about how a body lies. So when a body's lifeless, it's like a sandbag. It just slumps and the limbs just hang or they're missing or they're bent up the back or, you know, it's, uh, it's very obvious that there's no life in that body, that it's just a slumped over piece of flesh. And do you remember the first time you saw a dead body? I saw civilians who had been killed and so forth before I was involved in combat. And I can't really remember the time frame of that. I just remember being shocked. There's one battle in my mind that, you know, it was many bodies. I mean, I was talking to one of my guys once I had linked up with them and almost fell backwards over a body that was slumped from who had been shot as we approached the building. And inside the building, there was a, a, a fair few uh, enemy combatants that had been killed. So that's probably the most amount of people I've seen sort of killed in one spot. The thing I remember the most was uh, an Afghan family. They were uh, nomadic and they were moving and they were on the side of us and we were in our armoured vehicles basically, Bushmasters, an Australian armoured vehicle. And we're cruising along and they had their camels and their, their animals with them and so they're moving slowly. We're going slowly as well because we're clearing the route from IEDs. So we would push in front of them and then they would overtake us and then we're sort of making jokes to ourselves like, you know, it's, it's a race between us and the camels, like we're not really getting that far, that fast. 
Then we settled down for the night and they sort of settled off over the side. They left in the morning and we heard an explosion. And we saw it and we thought, well, we better go investigate. Then we heard another explosion. And then we punched down, like, you know, we thought that basically a teller probably was putting a bomb in the road for us and maybe blew themselves up. But what it was, was this family. One of their camels hit an IED, which was set for us. One of the sons grabbed the other camels to get it away and then he stepped on an IED, which blew him apart. And by the time we got there, his father's picking his son up. His son's children are there and they're crying, but those little children have work to do. You don't have time to stop because you've got to get the, the equipment off the dead camel and everyone's got things to do. So just cry while you're working. So we just spent the day trying to help them. We just spent the day picking up pieces of human flesh and the father would come past with his hands and we'd place his hands and we got a body bag and we'd start collecting pieces of body so that they could bury their son that night because of Islamic religion. And um, we helped them with money and tentage and whatever we could do, whatever we could do. But his eyes, the eyes of that father looking at me, it's just uh, the worst thing that I can think of. And then that night, the, they set the grave up and stones and then the mother was just wailing at night time. And so all you could hear at night was her wailing at the grave. That was the worst memory I have. So then what should our expectations be of soldiers who are suddenly engulfed in a war that is relentlessly bloody on both sides? And can any amount of simulated training prepare them for the effects of trauma on their moral compass. You spoke about a time when you were in such close combat with the enemy, you ended up having to stab one of them in the face. This individual got caught out, so he drew his, his knife, and, and now we use clearing knives to keep people off our guns. It's, uh, it's a little disturbing, stabbing at him, but again, this fella's getting hit with a knife and I'm coming into support, and it seemed very slow motion. You know, he's just kept living. So eventually came in and shot the guy. It's, um, it's another example of uh, that moral compass. You don't want people to sit there and just suffer. It's an odd thing because it, for me, there's not a hate. There's a want to end bad people, but it's not in a way that you wish to torture them. It's, uh, it's an odd thing. The, the, to think about really. It's probably the first time I actually thought about it like that. You want to end evil people, but you don't want to become evil in doing so. And a lot of soldiers talk about the paranoia or the angst and the anticipation of violence and there's a relief. It's a chemical release of the body. Like when you know you're in a, a dangerous situation, you know, it's like if we felt a tremor, we would think now there's, a, there's going to be an earthquake that follows that. You're anticipating something going wrong. And then, you know, the, the relief for combat is just basically once something does happen, you're not waiting for it anymore. It's the waiting that is such a stressful thing. It's, it's, you're calm, but you're calm amongst stress, if that makes sense. Like, 
you could step on an ID at any time. I think uh, my platoon had 20 ID incidents in 2010. You know, the car behind me blew up, the car in front of me blew up, we got blown up in that village. We were always dealing with IEDs. Once it's uh, underway, it's, it's sort of like a, a relief and then the adrenaline kicks in. It's all chemicals of the body um, that are being released that, that have this effect on you. How, what was the effect on you when you saw someone get shot in the face the first time? Well, it depends, you know, like it's uh, the, the big, biggest thing is the, the effect of a weapon on somebody. It's like, um, you know, I went to have a look at, uh, we ex you know, exploited basically a, a, a position where someone was shooting at us and one of our snipers uh, was able to engage fairly close range for a Barrett uh, 50 cal sniper rifle. And so he was probably shot maybe at uh, 600 metres. So being hit by a 50 cal sniper rifle in the head at 600 metres leaves a lot of carnage. So this fellow just had the skin of his face. His, his skull was spread probably, you know, 20 metres around the place. And it was just, uh, just his face. It looked like, um, like a paper mache. It's, it's odd. The horrors of war are a deep emotional burden. Being enmeshed in violent combat wears you down mentally, just as much as it does physically. Post-traumatic stress disorder is just one condition that can develop in response to single or repeated exposure to traumatic events. The government released a report that looked into the effects of the Australian Defence Force on its military personnel. The report found that a staggering 46% of veterans who left the ADF experienced a mental disorder within five years. And how do you deal with that horror when you come back to Australia? You, you know, do you get much sleep? No, I don't sleep much. Can't you tell? <laughs> so no, I don't sleep much, but um, I don't have nightmares or anything. I just don't sleep. When I do sleep, it's no problem. It's, it's good, but uh, yeah, you, you, you need some medication to help knock you out sometimes. But I'm busy, so I don't like being sort of too knocked out. So sometimes I just get three or four hours sleep and off I go. And then I get exhausted and then I'll take something and sort of know that there's nothing on the next morning so I can get some sleep. We see so much trauma that there's trauma upon trauma upon trauma. So it's not so much a post-traumatic stress event. It's the fact that we're not having stress. We're not seeing trauma. It's almost a lack of traumatic stress. It's like eating hot food all your life and here's some plain food with no spice. And, and I think this is, this is something that's uh, it's difficult. So for me, I just keep incredibly busy. And you'll see some guys that keep incredibly busy or other guys are heavily medicated and a lot of guys commit suicide. It's no really good answer, but you try to get the best answer. And for me, the best answer is to be productive and do all I can so my life's not a negative influence on somebody else. We all lose a, a piece of ourselves over there, but you mend that. And the end product can probably be better than what you started with. This episode of Violent Times was hosted by me, Mahmoud Fazal, produced by Callum Vandermortel, 
edited by Dom Duca, mixed and mastered by Jeffrey O'Connor. Our series producer is Katie Roberts, and post-production coordinator is Pia Caridi. On the next episode of Violent Times, I'll be travelling to Japan to talk with the Yakuza, the country's most notorious organised crime syndicate, about how violence informs their cultural practice and heritage. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.